Well, it's good for us this morning to return uh, to the book of Samuel, specifically to the life of David. This is our ninth week in our study of the life of David. Remember, we're not studying a book of the Bible per se, we're studying uh, a life. And so I invite you this morning to turn with me not to 1 Samuel, uh, but to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. This is the first time that we have found our way uh, into 2 Samuel, having skipped Uh, quite a bit in David's life. That was always the plan. We never were going to look at every nook and cranny of what David experienced or what David, uh, what was recorded of David in God's word. But let me just remind us uh, of where we were since it's been a couple weeks. Remember when we were last with David, he was wandering in the desert. He was evading Saul who was after him for his life He was gaining a following, and even in that following, he was doing good work in the countryside. He was protecting uh, uh, Nabal's uh, flocks against marauders. He's been dealing with God's enemies as they have risen up in different pockets in the land of promise. Well, where we pick up today, we have fast-forwarded quite a bit in, in the life of David. Most significantly, the thing that has changed from where we were with David wandering in the wilderness, evading Saul, most significantly what has changed is as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning, Saul is dead. He's gone. And so that immediate threat is no more. Now one might think that with Saul, the king, out of the way, that David's struggle to become king himself, which God had anointed him to become, is over, but it isn't. No, Saul died, but as a result of Saul's death, two kingdoms have formed in the life of God's people. The tribes of Judah have gotten behind David, the national treasure, the one who defeated Goliath. But the tribes of Israel have gotten behind Ishbosheth, the only surviving son of Saul. And so there is this tension for a time in the promised land. But it's soon to change. 2 Samuel chapter 5, Ishbosheth is killed, and that paves the way for a nation to be united in a way it hasn't recently under David's rule. And so now here as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is now king over all of God's people. A new era has come. And a new era calls for new priorities. And that brings us to today's passage Listen as I read, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Listen as I read. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned. On the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez, Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the shout of the horn. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Whoa, what a passage, huh? Two exhortations that I want us to see and meditate on from this passage this morning. Let's jump right in. The first one is this. The church must protect the holiness of God. The church, you, God's people, must protect the holiness of God. Of God. On the wall next to my desk in my study hangs a, a very small cuckoo clock. Some of you who have been in my study have likely seen it. It's a little tiny cuckoo clock, real dusty, not super fancy, a little bit broken. While it's made in Germany, it's not a particularly complex clock. It's not an antique. It's not something that is handmade and precious in that way. I don't think it really holds any value, at least not for you. Most of you probably wouldn't want it hanging on your wall, in your house, or in your office. But for me, that little cuckoo clock is deeply significant. It was my German grandmother's clock, and it hung on her wall in her house for as long as I can remember. And every year when I'd come and visit her as a little boy, I would marvel at that clock. And it fueled my fascination into adulthood and my love for clocks. 
Every time I look at it, it reminds me of her. The many years that she prayed faithfully for me. I bring that up because at the heart of our passage this morning is a box. It's an ancient box made of acacia wood. Measures about four feet by two feet by two feet. It's plated with gold. There's no doubt striking in appearance, this box, glistening in the sun. It was covered with a lid that held these two ornate cherubim, these angelic beings with wings unfurled. But it wasn't a magic box in and of itself. The Philistines had actually stolen this box, which the Israelites called the Ark. They'd actually stolen it for a time and held on to it for for several months before eventually returning it to God's people. It was a box, it was an ark that really wasn't worth anything to others, but to God's people, it was priceless. You see, it wasn't just a box. It was a box, an ark that Yahweh had commanded Moses to construct shortly after the Exodus. It was a box, it was an ark that contained three incredibly important things for God's people. Three reminders of God's work, of Yahweh's work in their midst. The tablets of the covenant that were given at Sinai, a jar of manna, from God's provision for his people in the wilderness, and Aaron's rod that had budded, representing the tribe of Levi and and Yahweh's call on that tribe to be priests. You see, this was no ordinary box. But even more than that, listen to Exodus 25, 21. You shall put the mercy seat, that's what they called the lid, on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, the Lord says, I will meet with you. And then Moses' words in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered. You see, the ark was more than a box. It was a reminder of past events, albeit amazing ones, but even more than that, it was a symbol of God's presence with his people. More than that, it was God's presence with his people. One commentator helpfully fleshes out this even more. He says that the ark pointed to three things. Yahweh's rule, David actually calls the ark a footstool for God in 1 Chronicles 28. It pointed to Yahweh's forgiveness. What was the lid called? The lid was called the mercy seat. The priests were commanded in Leviticus 16 to sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on behalf of the people on top of the ark. And three, it was was pointed to Yahweh's revelation. After all, what was found within but the Lord's covenant, the Lord's law. 
given at Mount Sinai. All this to say, the ark was incredibly significant in the life of God's people. And it's at the center of our passage. And for the last 30-some years, as Saul has reigned over Israel, it has been neglected, sitting essentially in storage eight miles northeast of Jerusalem. But a new era has come, a new king has come, a man after God's own heart is here. David is ruling, and so David, rightly so, wants to make Jerusalem not just the political capital of God's people, but the spiritual capital as well. The rule of God and the worship of God must coexist in this unified Israel. The presence of God must be at the center of the life of God's people. And so naturally, David says, the ark has got to be in Jerusalem. And so that's what this story is all about. A seemingly ordinary box, which is not ordinary at all, being moved from one city to another. And so with military might and and pageantry, David plans for the Ark of the Covenant to be moved. It's an event that's so significant in the life of God's people, it's recorded in another place. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles as well. This is a big deal. Verse 3 of our passage, the one I just read to you, says that they even got a new cart for the occasion, a brand new cart. They're dancing, they're playing their instruments, they're they're making merry. This is a great occasion. And then silence. Possibly gasps of horror. Uzzah, one of the drivers of the cart, lays motionless beside it. You can imagine the scene, everybody runs. What happened? Maybe they turn to his brother who's right there. What happened? And his brother says, the ark, the ark was falling. He grabbed the corner and then he just died. Now put yourself in David's shoes or put yourself in Uzzah's brother's shoes. How would you feel? Probably just like David. Lord, what are you doing? He he was only trying to help. The ark was in trouble. What in the world? This, This doesn't seem fair. Especially as we hear this with our modern ears. It's not fair at all. Well, David's anger towards the Lord turns quickly into fear. What in the world am I dealing with? This whole thing's off. We're not taking the cart into the city. I don't want anyone else to lose their life. We're we're taking that thing somewhere else. David is so taken aback. So the journey of the ark to Jerusalem is called off and it takes this detour to the house of Obed-Edom. A man is dead, a nation is stunned, and the ark, this incredibly significant box has been diverted. What's going on here? 
What does this have to do with us in 2021 in Edmonds, Washington? Well, brothers and sisters, what's going on here is that God is revealing his divine holiness. Yahweh is reminding us again of his majestic, burning, white-hot, unmatched presence and purity. You see, Yahweh had carefully instructed God's people on the care of holy things, these, these items that were set apart in the life of God's people in order to convey to them his otherness, that he wasn't like them, that they were not like other nations on earth. He was wholly different, different than any other God. He was the one true God. And so we read in Numbers 4, 15, and when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath have come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Yahweh said, don't touch, don't look, don't trifle with the holy things. I have the right to demand how I ought to be approached, how I ought to be worshipped. And you need to be attuned to that. You see, God God didn't want this to happen God had graciously warned his people against this, but he warned that it might happen. It's kind of like parents, when you plead with your your children, please, the burgers are on the grill, the grill is hot, please don't touch the grill, and then they come running to you five minutes later with burned hands. You hurt for them, of course you do, but it's not like it was unfair. Here, Uzzah's intentions might have been good, but the end did not justify the means. What was Uzzah's error? Excuse me, what was Uzzah's error, as the Bible says? He had forgotten God's character. He had forgotten God's instructions. He was treating Yahweh as familiar and presuming too much. And frankly, the whole entire process, the whole entire move of this ark, it was, it was off from the very beginning. The Levites were supposed to carry this ark. They were supposed to do so using poles. It was not supposed to put on, be put on a cart and pushed, even if it was a nice, shiny new cart. See, these weren't arbitrary guidelines by a temperamental God, but these were abiding instructions that God had given and he had called his people to live by. We dare not lose sight of God's holiness. We dare not exalt ourselves or our methods over God's. David and Uzzah did both. And that's why I say the church... God's people must protect the holiness of God. And that's not because God needs us to defend him. 
God doesn't need our help. It's because, of, it's because that's what we're called to do. It's because when God becomes small, so does our sin. But the world and the cultural air that we breathe, that's exactly what the world wants. A God who is for me but doesn't get in my way. A God who will bend to the times, not confront and judge what I choose to be. A God who hasn't really spoken or really didn't mean what people have understood for centuries upon centuries and generations upon generations that he meant. And while it's expected that this would be the kind of God that the world wants, it can't be the kind of God that we proclaim. The church, you and I, must resist the temptation to both downplay the doctrine of God and the reality of our sin. And I think this passage brings that front and center to us again. Sure, this story is shocking. But this isn't some boorish, archaic deity that we ought to discard. This is a God who is burning with white-hot purity, hates sin, but loves his people fiercely and wants only life for them. David Wells, the theologian and author, wrote this. He said, God stands before us not as our therapist or our concierge. He stands before us as a God of utter purity to whom we are morally accountable. He is objective to us and not lost within the misty senses of our internal world. His word comes to us from outside of ourselves because it is the word of truth. It summons us to stand before the God of the universe, to hear his command that we must love him and love our neighbors as ourselves. He is not before us to be used by us. He is not there begging to enter our internal world and satisfy our therapeutic needs. We are before him to hear his commandments. We, the church, must guard the holiness of God. Well, getting back to our story, three months pass with with the ark shuffled off to plan B, right? The house of Obed-Edom. And David is noticing, because he is told, that the house of Obed-Edom is flourishing. God's presence sits in the midst of it, and what happens with God's presence but flourishing. And so David resumes the journey, but he does so more carefully this time. First Chronicles 15, David says to the priest, consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so again, as the ark begins its journey from Obed-Edom back to Jerusalem, again, much fanfare, much rejoicing, and it's an interesting shift that we have, even in our own hearts, right? This very serious, somber scene of judgment and holiness and death. 
And we go from holy terror to gladness with abandon. David is rejoicing. David couldn't be happier. And it comes to us through the person of Jesus. And that's our second truth. Yes, the the church must guard the holiness of God, but the church must also proclaim the holy presence of Jesus. The church must proclaim the holy presence of Jesus. Here's how I want to get there. This whole event was written about, it was sung about for generations upon generations amidst God's people. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. This whole journey with with David, we've been kind of looking at these Psalms and how these songs and poems that he wrote have tied into these events in his life. Well, Psalm 132 doesn't say that it's written by David, probably not written by David, but Psalm 132 certainly speaks to this event. Listen as I read. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Empaphra. We found it in the, in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Do you hear that in verse 11 and 12? Verses 11 and 12 are dripping with messianic hope. You see, the ark made its way successfully to Jerusalem. God's presence was at the heart of the life of God's people there in the capital. And yet, it was still kept at a holy distance. True, David rejoices even in that. Even after the terror and trauma he experienced on his first attempt to bring the ark, But brothers and sisters, our rejoicing is so much richer and deeper because his presence is so much more intimate. Yes, God's holiness still burns. But there is a bridge. Closeness is ours through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal 
redemption. For Christ has entered into heaven, himself, heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so all that the ark pointed to, Jesus is. As prophet, as priest, as king, he is the revelation of God. He is the mediator between God and man. He is making his enemies his footstool. And he will come again to make all things right. He will come in holy righteousness, but with intimate love. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we tremble before our God. We recognize and we guard His character that we see here, His commands that we read here. We bow before Him. And we dance and we shout for joy with gladness because we can come near through the person and presence of Jesus. This is our message. This is our lives. The holiness of God and the holy presence of Jesus.